0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Music. I'm your host, Jordan Stokes, and today I will be talking to Jennifer Bain about her recent book, Hildegard of Bingen and Musical Reception, The Modern Revival of a Medieval Composer, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Hildegard of Bingen was many things—a religious leader, a prolific letter writer, a visionary prophet, possibly a compiler of medical lore, and certainly one of the most important composers of the 12th century. In recent years, Hildegard's reception in academic circles has, for good and compelling reasons, focused on her status as a powerful, educated, and brilliantly creative woman in an era when few women were afforded such opportunities. But this has not been Hildegard's only legacy. In her book, Bain charts the 19th century reception of Hildegard's life in music and, in doing so, provides a valuable perspective on the version of Hildegard that we know and love today. As Bain demonstrates, Hildegard has been in an almost constant state of revival since the early 19th century, and at every turn she has meant something different. Depending on the interests of the scholars who were reviving her, who were themselves grappling with very specific historical circumstances, including the long-term fallout of the Napoleonic Wars and the very long-term fallout of the Protestant Reformation, Hildegard has been important as a German, a Catholic, a Benedictine, and a mystic, as well as as a woman. Jennifer Bain, welcome to New Books in Music.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having
0: me. So traditionally, we start off by asking you a couple of questions about yourself. Can you tell me, uh, how did you become a musicologist?
1: Well, I played the piano when I was growing up and in high school, and music was something that I just really loved to do. I was never crazy about performing. I loved to learn music. I loved to play music, but I didn't enjoy the uh, playing in front of an audience, but I really wanted to study music more. So I went to university to study music. At first, I thought I would become a, a music therapist, but then once I learned more about what music therapists did and the kinds of clientele who they worked with. Um, I think it can be a very difficult and kind of heart-wrenching job. So I decided that wasn't for me. And I actually then moved on to do music theory. So my all three degrees are actually in music theory, but at a certain point I became very interested in medieval music, which meant that I kind of developed this dual profile as a music historian and as a music theorist.
0: Even if you're doing theory with the medieval period, you end up doing the history of theory.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, to understand any of the theoretical writings about medieval music, you have to understand where they came from, what kind of, you know, community they were written in, who they were written for. And as soon as you start doing all of that, you are really doing music history. And with this particular project, I really... When I, uh, in my master's program, actually, I started off wanting to learn more about the history of women and music. So I was doing a music theory degree, but I thought what I wanted to do was analyze music by women. And I knew about a number of 20th century composers. This was the early 1990s. Um, but I really didn't know about female composers from before the 20th century. So I started a project On women composers before 1900. And as I began that research, I quickly realized that that was actually a huge topic. And at that stage, I really had no idea that there were so many composers, women who had been writing music before 1900. So then I, to narrow the topic, I decided I would do women composers before 1800, and then I had to narrow the topic further, so I reduced it to four German composers, and then eventually I reduced it further and and landed with Hildegard. So my interest in her really goes back to that time period and really was motivated by wanting to work on, on compositions written by women. So I did analytical work on Hildegard, at that point in my master's thesis, looked at uh, four, or five antiphons by Hildegard, analyzing them. And while I was doing that work, I came across a number of writings about Hildegard from the early twentieth century. One in particular from 1922 by Ludwig Brenarski, and I was fascinated that people had known about Hildegard enough to write books about her in the early 20th century because from, you know, things that I had read that had been written in the late 20th century, in the 1980s, it sounded like Hildegard really hadn't, you know, had just been discovered. That was kind of the trope that everybody was using. Here's this newly discovered composer and figure. But yet it was clear that in Germany in the early 20th century, people were writing about her. So I became very curious about that. Like who, who was it who was writing about her? What, what did they know about her? How did they know about her? Um, why was she important enough to merit study at that point? And that really is where this project began. But After that, I then did my PhD and I I moved to the 14th century and to a male composer, Guillaume de Machaut, and worked on his music for a number of years. But ultimately, this project kept calling to me. So I spent a number of years gathering sources and going on archival trips to to bring the material together.
0: I think that one of the things that's so striking about that, as you say, is that There's kind of multiple Hildegards, right? There's a a Hildegard that comes out of the later 20th century revival, which I think is kind of the Hildegard that you get a sense of if you read a undergraduate music history textbook. But then what you've unearthed here is that this is by no means the only role that she has played, leaving quite aside the question of who she actually was while she was alive, just in her historical reception. There have been a couple of different versions of her that have meant different things to different people. And it's really quite striking how different they are from the one that we sort of know and love today. I think that it might be good, though, for the purposes of the podcast. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about the the received Hildegard? the way that she emerges in the later 20th century, before talking about how these, uh, these new Hildegards that you have found relate to that.
1: Yeah, I think in the, in the late 20th century, there were um, really two groups of people who became very interested in Hildegard. One was feminists. I mean, Hildegard became, in women's studies, a very strong figure and somebody who a lot of scholars became very interested in. We actually have, you know, quite a few materials relating to Hildegard from the 12th century. So there was a lot that people could work with. There were her visionary writings. There was the music. There's this whole uh, group of letters that she wrote and received from various people. So there was, uh, uh, people became very interested in her partly because there was this personality there. And she seemed so, different from what we expect a 12th century woman to be Uh, she seemed to have a lot of power and was able to do a lot of things that traditionally we think and I think it's true most 12th century women weren't able to do they weren't educated they weren't able to you know they didn't have opportunities to write and do all of those sorts of things for the most part So feminism was, and uh, feminist circles, uh, women's studies, writers and scholars were very interested in her. But then the other group was the New Age movement. And I think that also relates to these multiple elements in Hildegard's profile. And particularly... For the New Age movement. It was the music and the visionary writings, but also that Hildegard in Germany really had a reputation as a healer. And there are a couple of books of writings about medicine and about the properties of plants and natural elements that have been ascribed to Hildegard. Those are actually. Those writings are the only ones that are really in some way contested, whether or not Hildegard wrote them. But there is this tradition of understanding of reception that she did write them. And in Germany, people became very interested in uh, that form of medicine. And so within the New Age philosophy of trying to unite the spirit and the body with a kind of holistic approach, The fact that she had this interest in natural medicine, but was also a visionary and a writer and creative uh, and creative musically, all of those elements together were really of great interest to those in the New Age movement.
0: And I think one thing that comes across in your book is that although we don't usually think of the New Age movement and feminism as being intimately connected in any way they do have a certain amount in common in that they're both counter to the dominant culture and that uh, both of them then find hildegard useful as a forgotten figure this this example of a person or of a way of thinking that had been squashed and lost and can now be reclaimed but then as we we go on into the first chapter of your book it seems as though well she was never really lost right that starting from pretty early she'd had at least a local reputation. So the first chapter is about her her reputation from 1179 to 1850.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that is, of course, a, a huge time span. But I wanted to really touch on different centuries and how Hildegard kept coming back and people knew about her. But because she was a founder of two monastic institutions, that, I think, is really... One of the main reasons why she wasn't forgotten, because if you're a founder of an institution like that, the, the monks or the nuns in the institution do remember their founder, right? That's an important part of their story as an institution. Uh, and frequently founders are are celebrated in, in some way. So she had established the Rupertsberg Monastery, probably in like the 1150s. And that was, it was significant. It's also significant to Hildegard's story that it was, you know, this breaking away from a male institution at Dizzy Bodenberg, which was run by an abbot. And so it was significant that you know, she took her nuns and left from there and went and established her own place in Rupertsberg. And then 15 years later, she established a daughter house across the Rhine in Ibingen and traveled there once a week to you know, minister to the nuns there. So to have these two institutions that she had founded and uh, that remembered her was really significant for the endurance of her memory then over the centuries. In the 17th century, the Rupertsburg Monastery was destroyed during the Thirty Years' War, and the nuns who were still there at that point left before the Swedes arrived and they took some things with them. They took the, the Reason Codex, which is a major, important manuscript associated with Hildegard, and they took her relics. Uh, maybe they took some other things as well. But they they ended up at Eibingen, and then that monastic institution continued as well. There was a brief period of time, I think, in the 18th century when at Eibingen it ceased to be Benedictine and there were some other nuns there, but then it was reestablished and then closed again in the early 19th century. In 1803, it was officially closed by the government. But the fact that you had from 1179 until 1803, this pretty much continuous tradition of women living in these institutions that Hildegard founded meant that her her reputation continued. But then there are all kinds of other ways in which her reputation was sustained during that time. Her writings uh, were circulated in various ways. There are actually 400 manuscripts of Hildegard's uh, works that are in circulation which is, you know, that's, that's a huge <laughs> number. Only two of them have, uh, or there may be three others that have just one or two musical pieces in them, but uh, mostly it's not of her music, but of her other writings. So her writings circulated. There are also artworks. Because she was celebrated locally as a saint, there are various sculptures from the 15th century, from the 16th century, that are in regional Churches. There are items, of course, that came from the Ibingen convent. There was an altar cloth that was destroyed in the Second World War in a museum, and a number of other th- things like that. And, and then Expanding past 1850 in the early 20th century, there's a stained glass window that was installed in a church in 1911 or 12. But one of the other big things was in 1842 when Valhalla, which is a huge monumental, it's kind of feels like a mausoleum, but it's it's a hall of the dead. Uh, so to celebrate great German heroes and it's on the top of a hill above the Donau and it has all of these plaques and busts of figures on the walls in this hall. And some have been added since 1842, but Hildegard is included in the original roster of these heroes and listed there as an, as an abbess. So, you know, she was, uh, she certainly we can't say that she was forgotten you know she was particularly remembered in this kind of hall of german heroes and um, there were people who who knew about her in in one way or another
0: right that that already in in the 1840s she was famous enough to be one out of i think it was 160 is the number that you have there for uh, for the number of german heroes that are being honored and not by someone who comes out of out of the monastic community that she founded but by it's uh, it's king ludwig of bavaria right
1: that's it's, right yes yeah
0: so her her reputation was pretty broad it must have been this is a really huge huge commemoration so there must be a lot more that we don't know about uh for her to be that large of a figure for for the people that are building that that monument to germanness
1: Absolutely. And probably, I mean, my guess is that King Ludwig may have known about Hildegard partly through Goethe, uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, because Goethe visited the Rhine on, you know, he went on these trips to look at local art and, and wrote about his journeys um, and he visited the Rhine area in 1814 and 1815, and he did encounter Hildegard there. Now, he, he doesn't write that much about Hildegard. He actually says just a couple of things. But again, the fact that he learned about Hildegard when he was traveling the Rhine meant that locally people were talking about Hildegard. So, you know, maybe King Ludwig knew about Hildegard from his own travels on the Rhine, or, you know, read about Hildegard through Goethe, and then, you know, also through maybe through some other sources. But, but clearly, she, she was a known figure.
0: There's one more document of Hildegard's fame that you talk about in this chapter that I want to to bring up, which is Hildegard, A Romance of the Middle Ages. This is English language short story or novella, sort of in a gothic vein, it seems like. Can you talk a little bit about that, where you, where you came across it and, uh, and what it seems to mean for her reputation?
1: Yeah, I, that, it, that's a, a fascinating little story. So it, it's not a terribly long story, but it's in a collection of... Uh, stories from 1851, that seems to be the kind of thing that you would give as a gift, you know, you know that year's collection of stories, and probably aimed at women. And I learned about the story from a wonderful article by David Uros, and uh, he's not a Hildegard scholar, he's actually, I think, an, an opera scholar, but he came across this story and thought it was interesting in how operatic it seemed in its kind of structure and and storyline and uh, and wrote an interesting article about it and i had some different interpretations of the story and why it might have appeared because because david uros is not a uh, a Hildegard scholar, a medievalist, and he hadn't spent you know ten years doing what I had been doing here. He didn't realize just how well known actually Hildegard probably was at that point in Europe. Maybe not in America, although I mean there was there was a huge uh, wave of German immigration to America in the in the middle of the 19th century. So it's it's quite possible that German immigrants coming in knew about Hildegard. So yeah that story is uh, it seems to me to be rather um, anti-Catholic but celebrating Hildegard as this uh, very austere and kind of strict individual with a lot of power and there seems to be some almost magical elements (laughs) to her abilities and it tells the story of this young noblewoman Mabel who is destined to go to live in Hildegard's convent Um, and she doesn't seem actually that excited about that prospect and then a young, you know, charming uh, Italian stranger kind of sweeps her off her feet and she goes off to Italy with him and then is discovered there by Hildegard who makes her uh return to to actually enter her convent but the sort of anti catholic element there is uh that the stranger is actually the archbishop of cologne
0: in a shocking twist right <laughs>
1: uh the archbishop of cologne has been hearing mabel's confessions and has fallen in love with her and so then he disguises himself as his brother and sweeps her off
0: her feet. It does sound a bit like an opera.
1: It does. And and the descriptions of the archbishop and his residence are, you know, really focuses on all of these very opulent elements and, you know, rich fabrics and golden I don't know, lanterns and sculptures and paintings of beautiful young women. And So, yes, it is, it does really come across as a, as something that could very well be operatic to have the you know, disguised personality and uh, love gone wrong, and the archbishop at the end disappears, never to be seen again, and Mabel goes off to the convent but only lives for a couple of years and dies very young. So, yes, it's definitely uh, could be an opera.
0: Now, the notion that Hildegard can show up as a heroine in a sort of covertly anti Catholic work would probably be very surprising for a lot of the people that that were her devotees in the mid-19th century. So moving on into the second chapter, Hildegard's increased veneration and emergence as a composer, which is maybe the first thing that you could call a revival. Uh, and the, the protagonist here is Ludwig Schneider, who's a parish priest working in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. And it's he who puts on the first documented modern performance of Hildegard's music, but it's part of a much broader project. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, he grew up in uh, the area where where the Eibingen convent was, and he was born in eighteen o six. And I said earlier that the convent closed officially in eighteen o three. It was slotted. Uh, foreclosure in 1803, but in fact uh, it wasn't emptied until 1814. So there were um, some nuns who continued to live there. And Schneider actually tells a story about when he was a young boy of one of the lay sisters offering him, I think it's a plum from a, from one of the trees of the monastery. So it's clear that he had an, an association there. He was in Rudisheim um, and Ibingen is, you know, it's, it's, I've been there several times. And, you know, in, in 20 minutes, you can walk from the center of Rudisheim to the parish church in Ibingen and the parish church is on the site of the monastic church uh, from the Ibingen convent. So there were nuns there when he was a young child, he would have known the story about that convent. And would have heard about Hildegard, I'm, I'm quite certain, even from that stage. Uh, and, you know, th- this was the period of secularization. The government closed, uh, appropriated a number of monastic institutions and churches and universities as a way of compensating the German landowners who had lost Uh, some of their lands to France uh, because the west side of the Rhine at that point where Bingen is was was appropriated by France. I mean, it was given to France. So so lots of people (laughs) lost land and they needed to be compensated. So the way they were compensated was through appropriation of these monastic and church properties that were then given to these landowners uh, but this particular Ibing and the Ibing convent didn't close until 1814. So it was a part of the community and, and people were aware. And when it closed, there were two, I think a lay sister and a nun, who were still remaining and they were very old, like, you know, 89 and 91 or something along those lines. And the parish priest actually took those two old women into his own home because they had nowhere to go. So just for me thinking about that story, you know, that's something people would know about and would seem quite harsh. (laughs) You know, these two old women losing their home and and having to be cared for in some way. So I think there must've been this kind of emotional response. So I think for Ludwig Schneider, he knew the story of hildegard he knew the story of these institutions and he really made it his life's mission to nurture the veneration of hildegard and and it just it, i mean this is the part where i i'm trying to put the pieces together but i feel like part of his motivation really probably was this kind of response to you know the post napoleonic wars and the appropriation of of this area of the Rhine and then the closure of all of these Catholic institutions. And obviously as a priest, uh, the church was important to him.
0: So there's a bunch of antagonisms potentially, right? Uh, There may be a certain amount of resentment towards France. There could be a certain amount of resentment towards the central government that is closing down all of these local institutions in order to, to benefit landowners who presumably aren't from there originally. Right. Um, And then just sort of a, a deep commitment to Catholicism on the one hand and to the particular local community that he's in on the other. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: And then he, he's involved in the, the effort to have her officially canonized, correct?
1: Yeah. Now, um, yeah, she wasn't canonized at that point, but, she was referred to as a saint, though. So, I, I mean, it's a in the 20th century, there's a very clear process to in the 21st century to how somebody is canonized. And you know, first they have to be beatified, and then they're canonized, and there have to be so many miracles that they've wrought and an investigation into all of that. Um, and the first attempt at her canonization happened in the 13th century, and it didn't seem to have been complete. But she was... Uh, venerated locally as a saint, which wasn't unusual. That you know, that sort of thing certainly happened, and people talked about her miracles. So she was uh, really accepted as a saint. But in order to um, to increase her veneration, the bishop of Limburg wanted uh, Hildegard's remains, so her relics, her bones, to be authenticated. To you know, for it to be determined that the bones that they had that they thought were Hildegard's really were Hildegard's. And then if they were, of course, the Eibingen Parish Church could become this kind of point of pilgrimage, and she could be celebrated on her feast day using those relics as a a kind of focal point for the celebration. So the bishop asked uh, Ludwig Schneider to do the work to authenticate the relics, And um, he took this project very seriously and did a lot of research and also examined uh, her reason codex. So this large book that had been prepared in the 13th century, partly as as part of that original canonization process, they were putting together, you know, like a kind of tenure file, putting together <laughs> her whole <laughs> dossier, <laughs> you know, so that people could look at it and say, "Oh yes, this is very impressive." And so, uh, the Reason Codex contains her her three large books of visionary writings, also all of these letters, which in the Reason Codex uh, they they appear in other versions, many of them as well. But in the Reason Codex, they do seem to be edited, you know, to kind of uh, make. Hildegard seem even better and then also uh, included are her musical works in the same book. Now, Ludwig Schneider was musical. Uh, He played the organ and he conducted his own parish choir. So he had and he composed music as well. So. Uh, So that meant that when he was doing this research and reviewing the Reason Codex, he read Latin. He had skills in other languages, but he'd also studied Arabic um, and he also read English. Uh, So he did a lot of research and he also studied this manuscript very thoroughly and wrote a very, very lengthy document that uh, the Bishop of Limburg looked at and uh, approved and declared, yes, these are the true remains of Hildegard. And once they were authenticated, then they wanted to have a special feast day celebration with these newly authenticated relics. So Ludwig Schneider planned a very grand celebration uh, for Hildegard's feast day, which is September the 17th in 1857. And uh, it included a procession of Hildegard's relics. Um, the uh, churches all up and down the Rhine rang their bells at the same time. Uh, there were all kinds of local and regional important figures, you know, bishops and, and canons from the cathedral and mites and that sort of thing. And uh, sermons by several different people, uh, very important people. And uh, at the end of the service, a group of young women from Ludwig Schneider's Eibingen Parish sang one of, uh, some of, not even the whole thing, but the, the first part of Hildegard's sequence, O Virga Actiadema. And that music was transcribed by Ludwig Schneider, and he also made a, an organ accompaniment um, and would have accompanied them as they sang that sequence.
0: This is one of the striking things about it, the fact that the music is actually transformed to to suit the purposes of, of that particular event. Because you talk about this a little bit in the opening when you get into the New Age version of Hildegard, that a lot of the recordings don't demonstrate the proper faithfulness to the original spirit of the work music historians would usually like to talk about it you have these synthesizers droning underneath it and sometimes the harmonic or harmonic rhythm is maybe an anachronistic term to use at all but it's normalized right so that you have something closer to eight bar phrases but then we go back to this very clearly sincere a- appreciation of Hildegard by Ludwig Schneider that he also is making an arrangement of her music that makes sense for what he needs it to do so you see sort of the the same tendencies showing up in the early and the late revival, even if probably the actual musical product wouldn't sound very much alike.
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, it is interesting with with these recordings of Hildegard's music from the last 30, 40 years. um, If you compare those with recordings of chant, um, that to me is one of the most striking things is that most recordings of chant, um, are much more similar to each other. There will be some variations, and people have different um, theories about how to perform rhythm, for instance, to perform chant rhythmically. But you would have, you know, often it's it's groups. There are many many recordings, of course, by by monks and by nuns of chant from the Middle Ages, just generally, but also by, you know, some, like, university choirs or church choirs of various kinds, and, you know, mostly they're doing unison singing, they're singing in a comfortable range, and maybe sometimes they're accompanied on the organ, that uh, certainly happens sometimes in these recordings, but it's fairly uh kind of straight <laughs> in a way like the, the kind of approach to the singing um but with Hildegard it just seems like the variation in the kinds the way that people uh perform Hildegard they really take much more license than they do with chant in a way it's it's seen as more like song really rather than liturgical chant and many of the recordings are not trying. I mean, they you know, it's not that they're trying and failing, they're just simply not attempting to perform the music in a liturgical chant style. For Ludwig Schneider, I mean, what he was doing, though, was really very much in keeping with what he would have done with other chant. And in fact, his transcription of Hildegard's sequence and also his organ accompaniment, they appear in these editions that were published after he died, but were his own editions. So he transcribed not only Hildegard, but also chant from a what was a very popular book of chant that had been published in 1848, often referred to as the Mechlin edition. And in that book, the chant is, it's in square chant notation that many people knew how to read in, you know, in, in church settings and monastic settings in the 19th century. But for his parish group, he wasn't expecting them to know how to read that kind of chant notation that obviously was not part of the tradition. And so he transcribed into modern notation into just sort of a regular You know, quarter notes and half notes, those sorts of things. And with rhythm transcribed a number of chant uh, services, as well as Hildegard for his congregation. To sing,
0: so for him, having it be practically accessible to that particular group of people seems to have been one of the the major goals.
1: Absolutely, that was what was most important, um, and he included German translations. Like, it, in fact, in that service document from 1857, uh, everything in that document is in German. Everything was sung or all the prayers, everything were in German in this Catholic parish in 1857. And the only item that is in Latin is, in fact, O Virga Ac But underneath the Latin, he provides a German translation. So he wasn't expecting any of his parishioners to know Latin or to understand it. And from those additions, it's clear that he also did not expect them to be able to read that square chant notation.
0: This actually pivots very nicely into the topic of the next chapter, which is the German revival of chant sort of the the baseline when we talk about the revival of Gregorian chant is the French context with the Salem monks. Who are still very famous for their activities on that front. And if you, you know, if anyone listening to this has a CD of Gregorian chant lying around, the odds that it's connected to that tradition is is high. But the German tradition is very fascinating and quite different. It's something that I, I will confess, I knew absolutely nothing about before reading this. So for that chapter alone, I thank you very deeply. Can you talk a little bit about how? the German chant revival is different from the French. I think that it will, it will become clear as you talk how Schneider's activity fits into this broader project of reforming German church music.
1: Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, I think, uh, I think one of the most important things to recognize in the difference between those revivals is the difference in religion, uh, in the focus of religion in those two places. So in Germany, we have the Reformation and a very large uh, Protestant population. And so you've got the situation, and I'm saying Germany, although of course it's German speaking areas until 1871 really is the correct way to talk about it. But, uh, but in these German speaking areas, you've got a, a very large split where You know, it's sometimes 40%, 60% Protestant, Catholic, um, but that that number kind of shifts a bit. And you have two different approaches to religion and two different uh, musical traditions. And in France, although, you know, there were some French uh, reformers, it never reached the same level at all of adoption, Protestantism, and France really remained a Catholic country. So that that is one of the primary differences. And then related to the Reformation in Germany, then in these German-speaking areas, is that in the Catholic Congregations, they became concerned because of the the prevalence of these uh, German chorale books, they're called Gesangbücher, that were circulating, where the Protestants were singing hymns in German, and the Catholics. Uh, needed to react, the Catholic Germans needed to react in some way to that if they didn't want Catholic Germans to start singing the Protestant hymns. So so there you you have, first of all, that, you know, just right after the Reformation in, in the hundred years that are following, you've, you've got that issue that there's uh, a perceived conflict. About what people are actually performing. And then in the 17th century, you have the Thirty Years' War, which was absolutely a, a, a horrific, devastating event. And it was religiously motivated and it was violent. It lasted a long time. There were, you know, villages were pillaged and. Uh, It was very hard for normal life really to continue. And what some early 19th century writers report is, and early 20th century writers, is that during that period, the tradition, the liturgical tradition uh, in the Catholic congregations was really lost during that period. One of the things that happened is that, you know, when Catholic priests died. They weren't replaced. Like there was, there was so much disruption of infrastructure that, you know, there, there wasn't, I think, opportunity for priests to be trained to attend, you know, a seminary or whatever the process was at that point in order to take orders. So, During that period, by the end of the Thirty Years' War, the use of Latin in parish churches in German-speaking areas, in Catholic parish churches, uh, was really lost. And, of course, German as a language, it's not a Romance language like French is, and so its relationship to Latin is um, not as strong so many authors have commented on how Latin in any case was always more difficult for German speakers than for French speakers to deal with as a language. So really from after the 30 years war, Latin was not used in these parish churches. It would have still been used in, in you know, a large cathedral settings. Uh, and so in the 19th century, in particular, there was the sense that German Catholics really should start using Latin again. And the use of Latin then was also related to using original chant. So singing chant more rather than singing, you know, German hymns and, and those sorts of things. The idea was, OK, well, we really need to get back to, to the roots of chant But what ended up circulating as these new chant books, in fact, were not medieval chant. It was chant based on um, an early 17th century edition of chant that also purported to be trying to get back to original chant, but really wasn't. It was in this early 17th century chant book that is often ascribed to Palestrina, it was 1577, but it didn't come out then. That's when they were asked to do 1614 is when the, the book actually came out. But the editors of that volume did not look at manuscripts. So they they didn't actually, you know, do the kind of research where they, they dug up these old manuscripts and they said, okay, let's transcribe what's there. Instead, they said, well, you know, all of the chant that we're singing, clearly it must be corrupt because the way that the metric accents are working just make no sense. You know, you have these long melismas on what are our sort of weaker syllables and to the humanistic mind in the early 17th century that was very interested in this very close relationship between word and music. They felt that the, the chant that they received had to be corrupt because it didn't follow those principles. And so they amended the chant and took out many of these, like a lot of the melismas, they kind of, some of the melodies, they they tried to make more uh, focused around the final and, and really in a way sort of flattened the repertoire by making it more clear, I guess, in the structure and in what they felt was a clear structure. So, In the 19th century, then a number of editors, including the editor of this Mechlin edition, which came out in 1848, but also in an edition that was edited by Franz Zever Haberl that came out in the 1870s. And that edition became extremely popular, but also very controversial. So those two editions of music were based on the 17th century edition that had severely amended the Gregorian chant tradition. But that was the chant that many people were using as, oh, we're getting back to our roots, and this is Gregorian chant, and now let's everybody use this. Ludwig Schneider had a copy of the Mechlin Gradual and the Mechlin uh, Vesperale, and his editions of chant were transcriptions from those books. So, the they they were incredibly influential, but also for the monks at Salem who had been working from really the beginning, very close to the beginning of the 19th century, throughout the 19th century, trying to uh, they were doing the research, <laughs> they were looking at old manuscripts, and they were trying to find the earliest layer of chant that they could that would be closest to what they considered to be the antiphonal of St. Gregory. You know, there's the, the myth about St. Gregory that a dove landed on the shoulder and sang to him the chant repertory and he wrote it down. So what they wanted was to find like as close as possible to what he would have written down originally they did this research and they were creating editions of chant and teaching people how to sing this original chant according to their own performance principles there was some resistance you know for people who had been using then <laughs> this amended chant and there were other editions that also had been circulating in the early 19th century based on the 1614 Medicean edition Uh, So there there was some resistance because people liked the repertoire that they were singing and they didn't actually want to change. But it became a very, very heated controversy between the Salem monks um, and Haberl and his addition, not only because of the style of chant, but because Haberl had received a license from the Vatican Uh, For his edition, which was published by a firm called Pustet, uh, which actually still exists in Germany, um, to be the official book of Latin chant. And of course, if you think about, you know, how big the Catholic Church is and how many places around the world it exists, that was uh, a huge contract really for Pustet to have. And uh, all sorts of interesting things came out of that. You know, the, uh, the French government actually got involved because of pressure from the printing unions because they felt this was, you know, a monopoly and unfair and uh, showed Rome privileging this German publisher over these French publishers.
0: But dragging it down to the local level again, for someone like Schneider, the value of the Haberl edition – is to a certain degree that it's easier to sing than the Salem versions are. And they're trying to bring back the authentic church music, but they're also trying to drive up church enthusiasm, right? And that's part of why making these German translations of the Hildegard texts is an important part of it. They want people to to feel the stuff.
1: Absolutely. And to uh, yeah, to have a, a kind of a personal connection with it. So you know Ludwig Schneider had this general interest in improving the music um, in his parish, but then also this specific interest in Hildegard and in increasing her veneration so you know there there were um, uh, you know in the eighteenth century we have the Enlightenment, which is really a kind of Protestant movement more than anything. Uh, if you're thinking about religious alliance with these uh, more popular intellectual, cultural movements. And so Catholicism was, in a way, reacting to that and trying to resist the, I guess, resist secularization. Uh, and in the 18th century, I think there was a kind of intellectualism amongst the Catholic priests And in the 19th century, there was a concerted effort to make it make um, their job more pastoral so that they were encouraged and really thinking about um, their congregations and nurturing their faith um, rather than thinking sort of theologically and in a more intellectual way. It's not to say that they weren't intellectual and certainly they were highly, highly trained. I mean, Ludwig Schneider's academic credentials are excellent, but part of their job really was to nurture the faith in their communities. And so nurturing that faith, well, are you going to nurture that faith through these grandiose theological intellectual arguments, or are you going to do that by giving them... (laughs) giving the community somebody to believe in. And and I think that for him, that's, that's where Hildegard was really important. She was local. She was somebody that, you know, he could encourage his congregation to pray to and have this kind of relationship with.
0: Now, at the same time that Schneider is encouraging his German congregation to think of themselves as more Catholic, the government under Bismarck is trying to push Catholicism out of German public life. This is the subject of the next chapter, Hildegard and the Kulturkampf. Yes. And there's a a controversy that you describe between Johannes Schmelzeis, who in, in many ways seems to be kind of the successor of Schneider. He picks up right where Schneider left off and takes over some of Schneider's projects. And then Wilhelm Prager, who is a Protestant writer, who has some uh, some critical things to say about Hildegard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Schmelzeis is much more where Schneider is very concerned locally and, and doesn't um, I mean, we have. Many things that he wrote, but he actually didn't, um, he he kept meaning to write a biography of Hildegard and publish it, but he never did that. Uh, So he didn't really publish his own things or when he did, he didn't sign them. So there's a leaflet that he he had published um, and his name is on it. but he describes in the letter how he put the leaflet together and the same with that devotional service that I described. Um, so he, he was really much more interested in, in the local, but Schmelzeis was, uh, was very interested first of all in publication, but also he seemed to operate, I think on a more political level and he, uh, Schmelzeis published a number, he was also interested in biography, so he published a number of biographies. The first one was for, uh, he was working at a gymnasium and um, somebody, I think the director had died, and so he wrote this fairly short biography but published it about the life of, of this man. And then when he came into the Ibingen Parish Church as the parish priest following Ludwig Schneider, he wrote, I think it was a 96-page biography about Ludwig Schneider. And then the next big thing that he published was A Life and Works of Hildegard. And uh, he published that in 1879. And that particular book was uh, incredibly influential and was actually a very important book for disseminating knowledge about Hildegard and about her writings, because he spends a lot of time uh, talking about her visionary writings and the poetic texts of her music um, and that sort of thing. Prager was a Protestant writer. Uh, He was in Munich. And so he was in a Catholic part of the Country where um, he really he felt very marginalized, and he wrote some you know anti-Catholic tracts that were published in newspapers and that sort of thing. Um, but he he wrote this this large uh, series on German mystics, and uh, so he has a chapter on. Hildegard of Bingen and on Elizabeth of Chanel. And yeah, he's, he's quite critical of Hildegard and actually questions her authority, like her, her authorship. You know, did she actually write these texts? And, uh, and he thought by looking at the style of letters, for instance, of the letters from Hildegard, And received by Hildegard and said that the style was very similar and so questioned the authenticity um, of the letters and questioned Hildegard's authorship of her visionary writings and uh, and published this in 1874. So this was before Schmeltzeis had published his work, Um, but he, he wrote a response to Prager, which was published in 1878 which was uh, really a kind of ad hominem attack (laughs) on Prager, you know, saying, look, you know, this guy clearly doesn't even know Latin, and who is he to make these sorts of claims? It was very clearly a Protestant-Catholic conflict. Schmelzeis felt uh, that it was an attack on Hildegard because she was Catholic and it was coming from the Protestant Prager, And so that that in itself was a reason not to accept any of Prager's criticisms.
0: When Schmeltzeis comes out with his work, he also does include, although it's probably not the main focus for him, a discussion of the music, which is pretty substantial. And he brings in Raymond Schlecht to uh, have the technical description of the music and some transcription. So I think it's five pieces or something like that that are included as an appendix.
1: Yes, that's right. So he has quite a substantial chapter on the texts of Hildegard's music. So all of the chant texts um, he has... Uh, additions and translations of many of them in a large chapter and discussion about them as texts. But yes, so he does not seem to have been musical the way that Ludwig Schneider was because if Ludwig Schneider had written the book, he would have talked about the music himself. Um, But uh, Schmelzeis brings in Raymond Schlecht, who was very well known in German circles and had written a history of Catholic church music. So, you know, he was the big authority, somebody to, to write about Hildegard's music. And that particular chapter is not all that long, but it was very influential, particularly because there are these Uh, transcriptions in the back of the book. So it's in an appendix and they are modern transcriptions. So in modern notation with, again, rhythm, um, you know, quarter notes, half notes, dotted quarter notes, those sorts of things. And uh, Schlecht was, was very taken with Hildegard's music, but he talks about how, you know, during That particular time, even Gregorian chant was not embraced by everybody. And so Hildegard's chant, which he described as being quite different, would be even, you know, he he feared that it wouldn't get the kind of reception that he thought it deserved.
0: Right. So he has private notes saying this stuff is so remarkable, but we'll have to wait until the Gregorian chant is fully reestablished before we can kind of... Introduce people to the harder stuff, I guess. Is the the role that he seems to see Hildegard's music is playing. Yeah,
1: that seems to be. Uh, yeah, but yeah, how he's thinking about
0: it. And I, I guess maybe it's with Schlecht that the notion that Hildegard's music for medieval church music is unruly. Is more inspired, is less concerned with following laws and so on. And, uh, that this could be somehow tied to her divine inspiration or her status as a, as an outsider somehow. Um, that, that may be where that enters the historical record.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, uh, I mean, one of the things is that, um, you know, the more, people have studied hildegard's music in recent years and and the more actually even that chant scholarship has branched out um the the more we realize that you know hildegard's that there is other music from uh that century and the century before um that has many of the same characteristics so there there is a distinction between you know different layers of chant and different traditions of chant but when we talk about Gregorian chant, we're really talking about this earliest layer of chant that was transcribed starting in the ninth and the 10th centuries. And so then when you you look at what newly written chant, and most of the newly written chant after that point, is chant written for various saints. So it's what we call office music, right? It's not music for the mass, it's music the office and for these particular feast days. Uh, And that music often was, you know, more locally written. It may not have circulated quite as widely. And so you do have more kind of regional sorts of uh, traditions. And it's been harder to access. And Because in the 19th century, you have this desire to find the earliest layer of chant that has really remained until the last couple of decades, the most important chant to be studied, trying always to get to the the earliest. What is, you know, what is the beginnings of this repertory? So uh, late chant, you know, chant that was written, you know, chant continued to be sung in the 16th century, in the 17th century, and people have been much less, were much less interested in that, as I said, until, you know, the last 20, maybe 30 years, when people have started to really look at some of these other traditions. And when you look at this later chant, you realize, oh, okay, there are some things that were actually fairly Similar, um, so the, the 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 big thing I think that is usually described about Hildegard's music making it different from other chant um, is the range of the music, and uh, people love to say, and you know, one of her pieces even goes to two and a half octaves, which is an exceptional range. You know, if you had a group of people singing a Christmas carol that was two and a half octaves wide, it probably wouldn't go all that well, um, <laughs> but. In fact, if you look at the ranges of all of her music, that one is an outlier. (laughs) So two octaves, there are a handful of pieces that are two octaves. uh, And then most of them actually fall within a range of a tenth to a twelfth, which is not so outlandish. But if you're thinking about, uh, you know, mode and the way that mode is often described and at this earlier repertory of chant, um, you know, much of it falls within the range of an octave or a ninth, or some of it is, you know, even less, you know, maybe only a sixth. Or So if if what you mostly know is this earlier layer of chant, and then you get this whole repertory by this one composer who is known, and you see that the ranges are, you know, pushing on that, uh, then uh, it seems quite extraordinary. But as I said, uh, you know, people have been looking now at other, chant that was written later, uh, so in the 11th century in the 12th century and later, and realizing that other chant was written more like in that range that that Hildegard was writing in. So Hermanus Contractus is is one of these uh, composers. Uh, David Hiley, who's a big chant scholar, um, has published a number of studies and editions of these offices uh, composed by Hermanus Contractus and uh, when i first heard him present that material at a conference i was astounded when i looked at these chants because i thought these just look so much like hildegard that's fascinating um and so the uh, the kind of emphasis on the fifth and on the octave and the the push on the range uh was in fact something that uh that he was doing a century before hildegard now her music is all longer you know, some of the works are extremely long, um, in text, uh, and, and with the melodies. And I think that is maybe one of the things that really does distinguish her chant from, from others. But what was interesting is that Dom Potier, who wrote quite a bit about Hildegard in the early 20th century, he recognized that, Hildegard's style was he recognized it as a German tradition but he was somebody who had spent a lot of time going to monasteries and archives and libraries and copying chant so he he had access to a lot of music that maybe wasn't as um, widely known and certainly wasn't known to Raymond Schlecht when Raymond Schlecht was was writing his his material on Hildegard. What Raymond Schlecht knew really much better was these chant books that were circulating in the 19th century, like the Mecklen and the Haberel edition. And uh, those chants, as I said, they were often shortened and the melismas were cut. And those are, you know, two of the big things that really define Hildegard's style.
0: So one of the things that Potier notices, and this is, by the way, the, the Potier who is so involved with the French chant revival, and he's a, a central figure in that, is that there is a German style of chant, which has these unique features. Now, had Schlecht known this, had Schmelzeis, in a sense, known this, it would have suited their purposes perfectly, right? Because they are trying to position Hildegard as a uniquely German and uniquely Catholic person. Meaning that you can be German while being Catholic. So the fact that there is this, this South German chant style of, you know, the, the 12th century and thereabouts would have been very convenient for them to know had they known it. For Potier, it's not the main point, right? When he comes to Hildegard, he's coming from a different point. And this is, uh, the subject of the fifth chapter. You, you get away from the German nationalist version of Hildegard. German Catholic nationalist, I suppose I should say, towards a different Hildegard for a few different figures. So what is it that, that Hildegard meant to Potier, who probably is the person who finally puts her well and truly on the map?
1: Yeah. For Potier, Potier was a Benedictine monk. And for him, uh, his the way he's, he describes Hildegard is as a Benedictine. So that uh, association, you know, he's a Benedictine monk, she was a Benedictine nun. And for him, that seems to be kind of the most compelling element of her story. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the fact that she was a woman and his discussion of her as German is really in relation to this uh, more German style of musical writing. But he's, he's interested in her because she is in fact benedictine and he was pushed on that. It wasn't just him. There was the Cardinal. Cardinal Petra was, was also benedictine and had for him, Hildegard was, um, was one of Cardinal Petra's patron saints. He had a special devotion to Hildegard and he put together a volume of Hildegard's, writings uh, to be published. And it was a selection of things. It wasn't a complete edition of Hildegard's writings, but but a selection. And he wanted to have in that volume, not only Hildegard's texts, which had already been published in full in Latin, um, but he wanted the music to be included as well. So in putting together that volume, he needed Some texts and things checked in the manuscript copy, the Reason Codex, that was held in Wiesbaden, in the town of Wiesbaden. But he also wanted the music to be included in this volume. And so he asked Dom Potier to go to Wiesbaden and to collect the texts that he wanted, but also to transcribe all of Hildegard's music so that it could be included. Dunportier went on kind of short notice and took along with him his brother Alphonse Potier to Wiesbaden uh, and they looked at the manuscript and he he copied all of the music from the reason codex and actually his transcriptions still exist in an archive in uh, saint vandriel but for various reasons he he never supplied Cardinal Petra with the melodies he kept putting it off and not answering letters and um, uh, basically being kind of obstructionist. So Cardinal Petra had to go ahead with his volume without having the the musical examples. So only the texts are are reproduced in that volume. But later on he, in 1898, which was a significant year because it was the, uh, Hildegard was born in 1098. So it was the 700th anniversary of uh, her birth, or 800th anniversary of her birth. He uh, wrote an article about one of Hildegard's chants and published it in this review of, of Gregorian chant uh, that he was very involved in. And then over the next few years, he published a number of other articles and every article that he published had a transcription of uh, like an edition of, of one of Hildegard's chants. And that review had quite a wide circulation. And so I think that that really was significant in terms of uh, Hildegard's reputation musically, that, that people had access to it and they had access to, you know, very beautifully produced editions um, that then they could sing or have a group sing.
0: And you also have this major scholar of chant, kind of putting his imprimatur on it, saying this music is well worth attending to. If you have that review coming into your hands and you skim the, the table of contents and you say that Potier has put something in here, you're going to at least glance at that article, right?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting things is that um, Potier really doesn't like what Raymond Schlecht wrote about Hildegard's music. And, um, and he kind of argues with with Schlecht's, um, with his chapter in Schmelzeis' book. Um, although he never names Schlecht. He doesn't say that that's what he's doing, but but you can just read through his his articles and they're clearly attacking the ideas that Schlecht had put forward. I found that a very curious thing that he actually never named Schlecht because Dom Potier wasn't shy about <laughs> arguing publicly in print with people he didn't agree with. So... Um, I thought, well, why, why is he doing that? And uh, Schlecht had already died, so, you know, maybe he was just trying to respect the dead. But I think because Schlecht, actually, one of the things Schlecht says in his chapter is he's very effusive in his praise of Dom Patier and of the work that Dom Patier had done in the revival of Chant and said that Dom Potier would be publishing an edition of Hildegard's music, which, of course, he never did a complete edition. So I think uh, I think, I think Dom Potier didn't want to... It, Schlecht was important as somebody, as a German scholar, who was in support of the French revival of chant. And uh, because he had all of these conflicts with German scholars who were doing this other, you know, um, corrupt chant, uh, he, he didn't want to uh, be critical publicly of, of one of the supporters of the French revival.
0: Which is interesting because where so many of the people that we've been talking about have this nationalistic bent to what they're doing, Potier seems to want to have an international movement. He's trying to get his particular version of the chant adopted outside of France. So drawing a sort of boundary line and saying, well, I understand this, and this foolish German scholar doesn't get it, would be contrary to his purposes.
1: Absolutely. And, and it is so clear from the review that it's really... Uh, very mission-like, you know, you, you get these kind of reports from the field about how the the movement is going, in, you know, in Germany and in Belgium and in other places. So they're clearly really thinking about how far their reach is going, and, and it's important to him that he gets German choir directors on board and, and using his chant editions and, uh, and his style of performance. So for him, it wasn't just about the editions, but also the style of
0: performance. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything about the book that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to bring up?
1: No, not really. Except I, I guess the only thing I would say is that, uh, I think the final part, uh, in my conclusion, I talk a little bit about what happened in the 20th century. And I touch on that as well in a couple of other chapters, but, um, the late 20th century, more has been written about what has happened in that revival. But the earlier part of the century, I think, is a fascinating topic and, and could be a whole other book on itself, which is why I only ended up touching on it, because it the, the, the fact that the uh, Eibingen Monastery closed uh, officially in 1803, but not really until 1814, you know, meant that there was this kind of gap in terms of a center place where people were physically associated with Hildegard but the interesting thing is that in 1904 a new Hildegard monastery was established Um, and in English I refer to it as the Hildegard Abbey and it is devoted to St. Hildegard and, and that's in the Abbey's German title and what was interesting is that it wasn't Founded as a center for scholarship on Hildegard, it was founded as a newly established Benedictine abbey that was devoted to Hildegard as a saint, but it became a center of scholarship. And many of the nuns uh, associated with the abbey did tremendous research into Hildegard. And her writings and her music and and were very significant in the dissemination of knowledge about Hildegard. And I think that uh, it's it's an important <laughs> it's an important place for Hildegard scholarship, and important for people to to know that it exists and is still very interested in this legacy in the Hildegard
0: legacy. And they pick up some of that German-centered focus again, right? I think that you you quoted from one of the sisters talking about how Hildegard is an example to uh, to unser Volk.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, they published an edition of her music in 1929, um, where the music actually, the Latin is included, but the German is first. And just the way in which the music is notated, it's clear that, that they're expecting people to sing it in German, not in Latin. And the foreword is very, very centered on Hildegard as being German and being for the people of the fatherland. And... It's clear that her German-ness is really incredibly important.
0: Now, for those of you listening who want to hear more about the later 20th century appreciation of Hildegard, there are two articles, uh, Jennifer, that you wrote earlier, which we'll, we'll put links to those in the show notes. So people can track them down if they have access to a good university library. Before you leave us, let me just ask you: What are you working on now?
1: Well, I've uh, yeah, in the last uh, six months or so, I wrote and I've written an article on the film Vision, which was produced in Germany with the director Margareta Trotte. In that article, I talk about how the film is really presenting Hildegard more as a healer and a medical practitioner that seems to be kind of the, the biggest focus. There's a focus on her visionary writings as well, but um, but that element is, is really highlighted. And for me, I found that fascinating. Even her music is presented kind of in that light. She's using her music in a healing capacity in an infirmary in the film. Because... The Hildegard medicine uh, really became very important in Germany in the 1950s, and today in many places you can you can buy like Hildegard remedies. So I thought that that was an interesting way in which Hildegard was presented in that film. And then I've also been working on a uh, I worked on an article on a big sequence by Hildegard called Oh Jerusalem, and it's probably the biggest the longest kind of most elaborate work of hers uh, aside from the, the hour long Ordo Virtutum, which is a liturgical drama. So in that, um, I really look at her musical style and her approach to writing a sequence. And then I have another project that I collected a a number of items uh, when I was in Germany a few months ago from uh, the archive in, Wiesbaden, which is all about the Reason Codex and what happened to the Reason Codex, and also this now lost Skivias manuscript during the Second World War. And it's um, it's a fascinating story of, you know, how... Uh, how people in libraries were dealing with their treasured possessions and trying to figure out where to put them and what the relationship was with the Nazi Party, and then you know this, the reason Codex ended up in what was then the Eastern region, and uh, and it came back to the West through rather uh, interesting means. So, uh, so that's something I'm actually very excited to get to work on. Uh, I've got all the materials but I need some time to sort through them.
0: Well, we'll uh, we'll let you get to it. But those sound those all sound fascinating. I will definitely keep an eye out for them as they come out. Thank you so much for the fascinating book and the fascinating conversation and thank you for joining us on New Books and Music.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.